0: The book of Romans, chapter 3, I'll read verses 10 through 18, but I want to focus especially on the manner by which Paul describes our brokenness under the fall. So I'll focus on verses 13 through 18, but I'll begin reading in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And there is, I'm sorry, in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Thus far the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, as we come to you this morning, our hope uh, is that you might grant to us uh, a true and right theology, uh, that we would be people of your word, that we would not seek to blend the teachings of your scripture with the untruths that we find in the many false religions and philosophies and ideologies of those who surround us, who have a great investment in ignoring or corrupting what you say about men. And so, Lord, we sit at your feet this morning and we would ask that we might be not only hearers of your word but doers of it, and that we would carry the truth of it out into the world so that we might bring others into a state of salvation, of hope and trust in you, out of an awareness and sorrow of their own sinful misery. These things we ask in your name. Amen. As we come again to a portion that I preached on last week, I entitled this sermon once more, For those in the back, I'm not referring to those of you who are in the back here at Reformation OPC. I'm referring to those in particular, us, I guess in general, who struggle with an understanding and awareness of what the Bible actually says about people in their sinfulness. And in a, perhaps a helpful word picture, I want you to think of all of humanity together on a miserable carpool off a pit, off a cliff into a pit. Uh, Jonathan Edwards preached that once famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which he described the sinner like a spider dangling from a web over the pit of hell, the fires of hell. And in a moment, that web could be loosed and you could fall into hell forever. Uh, That sermon was not meant only to do something to the emotions of those who were there, he was building a call to repentance upon a theological idea, a robust idea from the scriptures that describes all people, that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that anger of God, as we see earlier in the part of Romans is an anger that is kindled for a reason. It is a just and true anger. It is an anger that is in response to something within every person at the moment of their conception as they are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We call this idea of the stain of sin original sin. And that original sin we inherit from Adam. Adam who is the covenant head of all of those who are not in Christ. And Paul later, as he builds upon this rich tapestry of theology in the book of Romans, builds to that point where he talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. And all people are divided into those two covenant heads. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ Jesus. And unless we are placed into that category... If Christ is not our federal head, then we are by default, de facto, in Adam. The problem with being in Adam is that he is no adequate representative before a holy God that we might be acquitted. That means set free from judgment, counted innocent. And this is a concept that if we do not understand That is, a knowledge of God. Now next week, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 through verses 1 through 18. And we're going to reconcile a doctrine of God and a doctrine of man together. Because we not only want to believe what is right, but we are called to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel that is built upon the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man. And if we don't get those two things correct, everything downstream from it will be corrupted. It won't be gospel. Not true gospel, not saving gospel. It'll be something else. And so this morning, i want to look at these handful of verses, just verses 13 through 18, which are a description of why Paul can say that there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks. But all men, instead of walking after God, have turned around and gone the wrong way. All ye like sheep have gone astray. Solomon would write in the book of Proverbs. And so there's three points that I want to cover. They're very simple, lifted straight from the text. Verse 13 and 14, we look at firstly wicked mouths. Verses 15 through 17, we see wicked feet. And then thirdly, we see wicked eyes. Wicked eyes. Wicked f- mouths, wicked feet, wicked eyes. Let's look at this first point. The possession of those outside of Christ are those who possess wicked mouths. Now, wicked mouth is not something that only those outside of Christ possess, right? You and I, even in Christ Jesus, if we are made new in Him, still struggle with the old man. And in the book of James, chapter 3, we see that struggle. And it is a description of our wrestling against this tool that God has placed in our heads that we are meant to use in order to bless. And so he writes in verses 6 through 9 of James chapter 3 this, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members, that is the other body parts, that it defiles the whole body. And it sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. (laughs) Nothing good to say. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness Or similitude of God. The tongue is a weapon. Sticks and stones, right, we say, may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. That's silly. That's a lie. In fact, as we say, the pen is mightier than what? Any sword. The pen is but an instrument that is connected to the brain much like the tongue. If words do not matter, then preaching does not matter. If words do not matter, then just stop teaching your children. But words can go in two different directions, can't they? Our mouths can either be used as instruments that give life and instruction and health and encouragement and thanksgiving... Or they can be used, as Paul would say, by those who are apart from Christ Jesus as open tombs. Now hear this first description of a throat or mouth or tongues or lips. It all has to do with this thing right here in the front of your face. And the first sentence against the mouth is that it is an empty sepulcher. Matthew Henry who has written one of the greatest one-volume commentaries of all of Scripture, writes this. Cruelty, colon. Their throat is an open sepulcher, ready to swallow up the poor and innocent, waiting an opportunity to do mischief like the old serpent seeking to devour, whose name is Abaddon and Apollyon the destroyer. The mouth isn't just that which leads to death. Your mouth, apart from Christ Jesus, is the very container of death. It is the grave itself. It is a tomb. It, in everything then that comes from it as a statement of its own being is as of the stench of death. Children, maybe you have a dog in your house. And when the dog goes outside and you see him eating something, you're like, what is that dog eating? And then the dog comes in and starts to lick your face, and your parents go, don't let the dog lick your face. And you smell the dog's breath. And you go, what have you been eating? It's not good, is it? That aroma that, wa- that sort of wafts forth from that mouth is as the stench of death. Why? Because what is in the mouth is not living, it's not good, it's, it's unhealthy. I don't mind if you have that word picture in your head when you think about the words of men and the mouths of men. Apart from Christ, we all have terrible, sinful, disgusting breath. And everything that comes forth from our mouths, apart from grace does not heal, it does not bring life, it is not pleasant, it is not aromatic, it's stinky. And it's not just bad smelling, it brings death. It is from death and it is to death. And not only that, but Paul says also our tongues are deceitful and poisonous. Henry continues, that is Matthew Henry, and he writes in his commentary, And when they do not openly avow this cruelty and vent it publicly, yet they are underhanded or underhand intending mischief. The poison of asps. An asp is a very poisonous or venomous type of snake. It is under their lips. It is a most venomous and incurable poison with which men blast the good name of their neighbor by reproaches and aim at his life by false witnesses. These passages, Henry writes, are borrowed from Psalm 5, 9. And this is what he calls it. In a summary, as he said, Cruelty with open tombs, he speaks here of cheating or deceit. With their tongues they have used deceit. Herein they show themselves the devil's children. For he is a liar and a father of lies. They have used it. It intimates that they make a trade of lying. It is their constant practice, especially belaying the ways and people of God. Our tongues are full of venom, they are full of fire, they are unruly. What does venom do? I remember years ago, my grandfather was working in his closet. I remember the story. I was not born at the time. We were outdoors, and he was pointing out to me a black widow, and he said, Let me tell you a story. And he was working in one of his closets one time, and this black widow dropped down, landed on the back of his neck, and bit him, and made him very, very ill. That is what the tongues of men are like, or the things that come forth from our tongues, our statements, our sayings. We come out of our rooms. We interact with our families. We speak with our neighbors. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe? Gossip itself is that kind of poison. Why is it there What is the intention? Why do men speak in such a way? Well, the purpose here is deceit. Why do men deceive? Children, why do you deceive? Is it to get out of trouble? Is it to cast blame? Adults, why do we deceive? Is it to bear false witness so that we might not experience harsh laws or the penalty due to misbehavior? There is something alive and well within the church and has been from the very beginning of time. Eve herself was guilty of this. What belongs to the category of theological liberalism. Now how was Eve, or the woman, a theological liberal? Because she, she was asked, what did God say? What did she say? Not what God had said, but some perversion of it. All theological liberalism is is not taking God at his word and perverting his own revelation so that what we end up with is not necessarily something so bad in the beginning as far as how it sounds, but what you end up with is what we find even around us today, a kind of cultural decay, a kind of ecclesiastical um, licentiousness so that we listen to and practice all manner of things, and it all begins where? Where? did God really say? Why do we ask that question? Because if God said something the way he said it, that means our lives have to be different than the way they are. And at the root of all theological liberalism is what? I want to eat the fruit. It's the longing of our hearts. I want to do X and so I will say... Not only in an effort to lie to myself but to others, the way things are are not the way that God has made them. And so I will, with my mouth beginning, build an architecture, a religious system, a city of principles and morals. I will design a sandbox universe of my own making where what I say is the way things are so that I can live in the way I wish to live. But really, what is the instrument here that controls all of the faculties? Not only the mouth, but the feet and the eyes. What is, the, what is that instrument? What is that organ? It is the heart itself. And we'll get to that in a moment. And then lastly, concerning our wicked mouths, we see that our mouths declare cursing and bitterness. They are a weapon. And we not only curse others, but we blaspheme the name of God. We wish evil upon our brothers and sisters. It is one of the great sins of our tongues. The Bible has nothing good to say about our mouths, does it? And all of these statements that we find in verses 13 through 18 actually come from the Psalter and from the book of Isaiah. God is revealing to us in relationship to our need for the gospel an inability that we have to merit, to long for, to desire the true way of peace. And our mouths indict our hearts. They betray our hearts. Because you may be here on a Sunday morning, right, and you're talking very kindly. You're very gracious in your speech. And then you go home and no one can see. You open the door, you walk inside, and sometimes things change. Or maybe the way you talk among your friends or your co-workers. Where they are not calling you to account for the things you say. Remember this. The tongue betrays the heart. The tongue itself is an instrument by which sinful men reveal their sinfulness. And not just the tongue, the mouth, but also our feet. And what does he mean by feet? I don't mean stinky feet at this point. Like I said, the stench that comes forth from our mouths... Here, Paul means that instrument that takes us places we ought not go or places where we do things we ought not do. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon speaks of, Young men, guard your ways. Don't go round the adulteress's house. Don't go to places of darkness where people cannot see. And there are ways that we do this that are not even with our feet, right? Sometimes we use a mouse or a touchpad. We go places and street corners we ought not go. We are in our hearts always leading our feet with our affections. Our heart is sort of dragging us along. And Paul mentions that our feet are swift to shed blood. What is he speaking of? He's talking about going to places for the sake of violence. Picking a fight. Starting an argument. Bickering when there need be no bickering. Left to their own devices, all men plan wicked plans. They pursue wicked ends, and they trample upon the rights of those who are not powerful enough to stand in their way. We are always declaring war. And this is true even in a modern, sophisticated age like ours. There are always wars and rumor of wars. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6... Verses 1 through 7, we see the inevitable swift decline of all humanity on earth because of the sinfulness of their heart. All their thoughts were against God. And in this inclination towards rebellion and disobedience, it doesn't take us long. And so it's not just driving to the edge of the cliff to fall into the pit. Men put their foot on the right pedal and they stomp down. And they say, if we're going to get there, we may as well get there quicker. And so they are speeding away to evil itself and destruction. In this way, so it's not just the horizon that they're seeking, right? You will arrive at your destination in three and a half hours. That destination is violence. But what's coming out the exhaust pipe of their lives is what? It's destruction and misery. They lead a wake of death. And in their path, children, perhaps another picture you might have is that of a snail or a slug. As it slowly moves along the ground. Now a sinner is a slug with a jetpack on his back, right? He's not just slowly moving. The picture I want you to have is that of a, the little slime trail that slug leaves behind. And this is what our sins do. This is what happens when we choose violence. This is what happens when we seek the blood of our neighbors. Is we leave what bodies? And it doesn't have to be murder. It could be the destruction of a life, someone's reputation. It could be spreading gossip and that person may not be able to get a job again or their reputation in the church is ruined. All of these things can happen. There's one rock band that glorifies the progress of being on that highway to hell, but there's no glory in it. And it only hurts you, it hurts those who are around you. Because there is no peace in this. And so they seek violence. They leave a wake of misery because they don't know how to have peace. They don't know how to find that path if they were looking for it. Because there can be no peace apart from the one who brings peace and reconciliation between man and man. And that is simply... The fruit of reconciliation between God and man. And so, in verse seventeen, Paul speaks of the natural state of men, being a way or a being one of a way of no peace. And so, men from birth have no opportunity to see or understand what true peace looks like. True peace. Because any peace, any lasting peace, cannot be found apart from the way of righteousness. Romans chapter 5, this is often, forms the content of the assurance of pardon. Paul writes a little later, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace can only come through justification. That is, we are made sinless and no longer stand condemned before a holy God. And not only reconciled to God, but then brought into a family where we are reconciled to one another. And even then, as Christians, it's hard to maintain peace. There are things you can say and not say. There are things that you can do and not do. It takes effort. It takes continual nurturing. But the unbeliever cannot do this. Not truly, not really, and even though they may obey the letter of God's law, they do not do it for the reason why God has given us the law to obey. It is not merely to do, it is to what? It is to glorify, and we cannot glorify God merely apart from him by doing the works of the law. We must do them as unto his glory. And so when you see an unrighteous man that is a sinner, not saved by grace, doing those things which are in accordance to the law of God, they are not for or done for the right reasons. There's still no peace there. Because peace for us isn't merely, can we not just get along? Well, no. We cannot just get along. Because there can be no peace apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, first sowing in our hearts, And then manifesting it in our members. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes again on this concept of peace. For he, that is Christ, himself is our peace. Who has made both one. Now he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. The covenant people of God. And this is how he has done it. By breaking down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And the way that peace comes, verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near. There can be no peace without the preaching of the Prince of Peace. And we've already seen that's not the way we're going. Those aren't the words that are on our mouths. That's not the gospel men preach when left to their own devices. What are the gospels that men preach when left to their own devices? Years ago when I was in seminary, I had a professor named Harold O.J. Brown. Harold O.J. Brown had four earned degrees from Harvard University. Smart guy. And he knew of another man who who ran the psychology department at Harvard. Can you imagine what kind of place that must have been? And they were building a new building through the donations of a very wealthy graduate. And as they were completing the building of this new college, this new wing devoted to psychology, they democratically sought to choose what they would name this, what mantra they would put over the door leading into the psychology wing. Now, there's your first error, right? Letting a bunch of college students decide something together. And this is what they chose. Man is the measure of all things. It's the humanist manifesto. And it's simply and utterly false. But it certainly described what was going on inside that building. Well, this guy, who was actually head of the school of psychology, was himself a God-fearing man. And while the students were away of summer, he decided that he would go with something different. Not man is the measure of all things, but what is man that you are mindful of him? The mirror opposite of that very sentiment. Now, I cannot imagine that any of the students may have even known where that verse comes from, that it even came from the Bible to begin with, and what it actually means. In fact, they may read and go, well, that's actually pretty cool. And they didn't even know that it was a very assault on their own ideological principles. It was, a, it was an affront to the things that were being taught in that school. But what that statement means is that at the end of the day, we expend an enormous amount of energy building a kingdom that cannot stand And we use our parts and our passions, our members, our mouths, our hands, our feet, our eyes, all of these things in service of a God of our own making. And that is the state of men. And so what we find here, lastly, in summation, in verse 18, is in many respects a description of what men are like in verses 13 through 17. And so that leads me to my third point, wicked eyes. Now of this, John Murray writes, the absence of this fear, that is the fear of God, is excluded not only from the center of thought and calculation, but from the whole horizon of our reckoning. God is not in all our thoughts. Figuratively, He is not before our eyes. And this is unqualified godlessness. The other day I was with my boys and they were getting haircuts. And the men that were cutting hair were talking about all the bad haircuts we've had growing up. And I was recalling to them that when I was in high school I decided I wanted to bleach my hair. So I literally took my mom's bleach cleaner, leaned over their bathroom tub, and poured it straight on my head. It was not a smart decision. And at the end of that, I ended up with what felt like something you would use to scrub pots off with in the sink. And I just applied this smothering of conditioner in order to try to restore something of the health of my hair. You see, bleach kills everything. It leaves nothing behind. The wicked man is sought to eradicate every notion of God from their eyes that they endeavor to pour bleach on their eyes, right? Religiously, ideologically. They want nothing of God in what they see, which is why they eradicate men. It is why they cannot build beautiful buildings. They eradicate any beauty from the world in their hearts, They are seeking to scrub from the way in which they most intimately interact with all things, not only the eyes in their head, but here Murray says their reckoning, the horizon of their reckoning, not just the eyes that are their physical eyes, but their mind's eye, the way they think of the future and what is to come. Every false doctrine has an eschatology. Every false doctrine has a what's going to happen at the end. And for the secular humanist, what happens? It's the glorious gospel that you become worm food. Congratulations. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and there is no eternal soul that will dwell forever. Why? Because how can you live in a world without gospel and possess a soul that will live forever? What will happen to it? And these are the kinds of people to whom Christ came. And so when we hear that Christ came for sinners, while we were sinners, we were those who were trying to erase from everything any notion that there was a God who is judge. And so we do not give him glory. Van Til said that the great thing we wish to do in apologetics is to present Christ to men. The problem with that is this. Let's say we're sitting in a cafe, and Christ appears materially before men in a body, and he walks up to someone and says, I'm Christ, you should repent. You know what that person will say? No, of course you're not. Christ walked on earth for 33 years. And for three years he came without mistake, as some men may say, that he never confessed to be the Messiah. Christ preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And at the end of that ministry, some believed, and yet some said what? Crucify the Lord of glory. They didn't call him the Lord of glory, but that's who they were crucifying. How can they see but not see? Even Thomas, (laughs) doubting Thomas, had to see. But it wasn't with these things, right? It was with what? He doubted in his soul. And this is the way of men. We live among a people who are empty and devoid of the ability to use their hearts and their members to glorify and honor God. And that is what men are like. And that is why we can confess that no one can tame the tongue. I've done a fairly good job of taming my dog. Even my chickens will come to the edge of the netting when they know that I'm going to give them a treat. My goats have learned. But for some reason, I cannot get up on Monday and keep this thing from saying things it ought not to say. Why? Because only God can do that. Only the Spirit, and in order for that to happen, what I must say is, Lord, would you take dominion of my parts and passions? I cannot do it in my own strength, right? I can't have a 40 days to a cleaner mouth. And there's the book right there. You can buy it on Amazon. I'm sure there's a book titled that, right? And even if I could for a moment... Control some of it. The great danger for men is that even though they may have one part of their life on lockdown, I got that thing under control, the car is still headed to the same place of destruction. Because all men have sinned. And so what we must say in relationship to a doctrine of the gospel that does save is that all men are in desperate need of salvation. Paul is dragging us across the law, and he is showing us this. There is one gospel, and every single one of us are in need of that gospel. And so our mission, dear saints, is to recognize that the fount of all of our blessings is the only one who is the creator of life, the only righteous one. And so we must use our mouths to express gratitude. We must use our feet to walk in ways of righteousness. We must see and acknowledge the lordship of Christ. But how can we do this? What does Christ say to the teacher of the law who should have known? You must be born again. Unless a man be born again, he will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. We must be given new eyes and a new mouth and new feet. And I don't mean... Hand, do they even have those? I guess they can put your hand back on if it gets cut off with a chainsaw, right? But I mean spiritually. I mean you must be given all new parts. All of you you must be made new. How? Well, we must be born again, but how? Here is the simple fact of the matter. Ask the Lord and you shall be made new. Ask of the Lord and you shall be made new. Ask that he might give you new hands, new mouths, new eyes, new feet, that you may walk in the way of righteousness. How? Ask. Ask and it shall be given to you. Let's pray. Lord,